Matthew 26, 26. This is Matthew's remembrance of the Lord's Supper. Jesus had begun the Passover. He had been telling them that there was going to be one of them who will betray him, and they're all going around the table now. Me? Me? Who? Me? Why? And then he moves from there into the into the uh, the supper, institution of the supper. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he bro broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, "Yes, if you would rise for the reading of God's word." Thank you, John Lucas. That's what happens when you go away for a couple of weeks. You just forget things. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And with that, we end the reading of God's holy word. And you may be seated. We're going to take, we take a look at the sacraments. And just let me remind you about a sacrament. A sacrament is a sign and a seal. And I would remind you, a sign points to something else than itself. And so when you look at the sacraments, whether it's baptism or the supper, it's pointing to something else, not to itself. But it's also a seal in that something occurs as you do, as you partake of the sacrament, that seals what it points to within you, within a believer. Not everybody, but within God's children, God somehow seals it. And there are other, two other words that I used. How does this seal? It's a mystery. Mystery in a sense, you don't see what it happens. I mean, we see the bread. We see the cup. We take the bread. We drink the cup. But you don't see anything happening. You could go through this and never realize what's happening, except there is something happening in the background. And that's the mystery. So you may come through the table and you may not feel anything different. But the mystery is something is going on. It is taking place. And the second part of that is a seed is planted. Baptism we talked about, especially with paedo-baptism. When you baptize an infant... The Holy Spirit plants a seed in those who are the elect infants or elect people. And that seed guards and guides and watches over them until the time when the Spirit comes back and changes the, transforms the life and changes them and they believe. But that seed is always at work. That's why people can sometimes say, well, I've always known that Jesus is who he is and, and yet I wasn't a believer. See, that seed has been doing its, its job. And the Holy Spirit looks at that seed and goes, yes. When you take communion and you eat the bread and drink the cup, a seed is planted within you. And the seed is starting to do 
for maybe the umpteenth time that which the sacrament signifies. And again, you may not recognize it right off. You may not see it. It may take a while, just as when you plant a seed, it takes a while before it blossoms. But it is doing its work within you. So, we are taking a look at Matthew 26, 26 to 29. And we're going to take a look at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in three ways. It's past emphasis, it's present emphasis, and it's future emphasis. So let's start with the past emphasis. Question 75 in the Catechism says this. How is it signified and sealed to you in the Holy Supper that you partake of the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross and all his benefits? See, the focus of that question is look back at the cross. And that is what the sacrament is meant to do. It takes you to look back. It is, and we sometimes use this word, it's a memorial. If you go to Washington, D.C., there are all sorts of memorials around there. And they look at past actions, things that have taken place. Vietnam Memorial is one of the most poignant of them. And you look at those who have died in the Vietnam War and you remember what took place. You are remembering. And for some of us who grew up during that time, we remember those years, the turmoil and all that took place. This sacrament is something that reminds us of what took place at Christ's death. Take a look at that Matthew 26 passage. When he says, take, eat, drink of it, all of it, all of you, our versions do us somewhat of an injustice because it just says, take, comma, eat, period. Really should be an explanation mark. Those words, take, eat, drink, are commands. Jesus commanded his disciples to take, eat, drink. He commands us to take, eat, and drink. That says to us that we cannot take it lightly, nor can we neglect the sacrament. We can't sit back if you're a follower in Christ and simply say, well, I don't feel like I ought to have communion today. I don't care how you feel about the communion. The Lord commands you, take, eat, drink. In fact, when you're feeling like you shouldn't take it, he's probably saying, take, eat, drink. Why? Because if you don't do it, you lose the blessing that there is in it, the mystery that takes place, the seed that is planted, and you lose what part of your, in a sense, salvation. You're missing something. And that's, what, that's why we celebrate it. Now the catechism goes and says there are two promises that, goes, that go with it. Um, the promise of one of Christ died for you. 
One of the things that the Holy Communion signifies in the past, that his death was not for you all. It was for you. And when you take the sacrament, you, re, you are reminding yourself that Christ died for you and there's an assurance that takes place. That's, I think, again, I think that's part of the mystery and the seed that's implanted. You are assured that you are a child of God. You are assured that you are a follower of Christ. And therefore, one of the things you need when you take communion is a time to reflect upon it. A time to think. It's not just that, oh, Christ died. Nice historical fact. But Christ died for me. And I remember how bad I really am. In my tradition, when we come to the, and I, I, I partly use this because I think it's a good tradition, but it's also my upbringing. When we come to the table, one of the first things we do is confess our sins. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and confess our manifold sins, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed. I love those little words, manifold sins. It's not that, oh man, well, I did a couple bad things. There are a multitude of things. And I grievously have done. And I repent. I am grieved by what I have done. And you only get that by reflection. But you also realize that Christ died for those sins. And as I continue to remind you, because we have a problem with this, past, present, and even the future sins have already been paid for by a historical act that cannot be undone 2,000 years ago. You see how totally free you are? You see how you are allowed to live life and live it even if you don't live it perfectly? Because they're already paid for. That doesn't mean you are licentious and you just do whatever you want, but it means if you mess up, like calling Matthew Mark when you're talking about the gospel, that sin was already paid for. And you can live joyfully in what you have. The second is, you are nourished. For instance, the elements are bread and wine. Bread nourishes. Well, unless you're on a carb-free diet. But bread nourishes you. In fact, it's one of the staples of life, right? Wine encourages you. But both of them are there to nourish and to feed you. And so when you take the elements, not the elements itself. I mean, what can a tiny little cracker, and I will not put this back in the plate, what, how much nourishment can you get from this? You know, there's probably 0.5 calories here. Nothing. You won't get much nourishment from this, and a cup will not satisfy your thirst. But the Holy Spirit does. He nourishes your soul, and, and he feeds your soul as you take this meal. You are, you are to called also to savor it. 
to savor the elements. If we do it too quickly, then you don't have time to, to savor it. I love that we use this kind of bread. Why? It crunches. And when you eat it, it crunches. And you are savoring and reminding yourself of a body that was given and sacrificed for you. There's a lot of churches I went to, they had grandma's recipe. Been in the church for years, but it was always a soft kind of bread. Even the bread we used to, and you, you kind of, it melted in your mouth. I'm saying, that's not what a sacrifice is. But when you have to crunch down on it, it's the drama of doing it. And when you take the cup, and normally the cup, I think, should be a cup of wine. Uh, grape juice only entered into communion in about the middle 1800s with the temperance movement. And uh, especially with prohibition when you weren't allowed to make or drink wine. But there is something about wine that is far different than grape juice. There's a fermentation factor. That something has changed from grape juice. Now if you're alcoholic you may want to consider not taking the wine just for the possibility. However, I, I also think that part of the mystery is that the Holy Spirit can overcome that with that little tiny cup. But I'll leave that up to you. But the wine that is used is always bitter wine. Why? Again, you savor it, you taste it, and it is bitter in your mouth. And you go, oh! And then you remember, oh, Christ died for my sins bitterly. And he died for my grievous and manifold sins, bitterly. And it brings home what happened on that cross. Again, it's a sign. And I think as those things happen within you, the Spirit begins to seal even more what the cross means for you. And when you do it, you are proclaiming the good news. You are reminding yourself and the whole group of the good news of Christ who died for our sins and rose again from the grave. That's also why, when you look at the past, we call this the Eucharist. It is a Eucharist because that's from a Greek word which means thanksgiving. When, you've gone, when you're going through communion, you're giving thanks. Lord, you did this for me. Thank you. You took upon my, yourself my, the wrath of God for my sins. You've shed your blood in order that I may be forgiven. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There is that joy that comes from it. That's the past. Then you have the present, which comes from question 76. Question 76, what does it mean to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ, and here you have a takeoff from Paul, uh, Jesus talking in his own time in John 6, where he would be reminding the people, I'm the bread of life. He who eats of me will never hunger, and he who takes of me will never thirst. And then he says this, these astonishing words. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, John 6, 56, 58, 
abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Go back to the original time he said that. What would go through your mind if someone said to you, eat my body, drink my blood? Cannibalism. Cannibalism. And to the Jew, that was absolutely abhorrent. In fact, the early church was accused of cannibalism because they heard, well, they gather together and they eat their Savior's body and they drink his blood. Why would I want to become a part of that kind of culture? Well, we realize Jesus is talking metaphorically, but he is talking about being so with him and he with you that you are connected together. We are called to embrace with believing hearts Christ and what he has done on the cross. We have to realize, again, the forgiveness we receive, the forgiveness of sins realized through him taking upon himself the wrath of God. As someone once asked, from what have we been forgiven uh, by the cross of Christ? And most people and evangelicals will say we've been forgiven of our sins. No, 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 no. We have been saved from the wrath of the Father by the Son. That's what takes place. And we have been given a personal relationship with him, a positive personal relationship. Everybody has a relationship with God. It's negative or positive. If you're an unbeliever, it's negative. If, it's, if you're a believer, it's positive. But that positive personal relationship comes from Christ. And the means by which we are called to come to the table is to realize that Christ died for my sins and I am called to repent of my sins. That's, again, I didn't read the whole confession, but part of it ends by saying, I repent of what I've done. I turn away. And not simply turn away, I repudiate. I, I desire not to do it again. I may do it again, but I desire now not to do it again. I repent. And as much as I have it within my power and the power of the Holy Spirit, I will not sin that way again. That's repentance. Why? Well, it's not because the relationship with God has been broken. Repentance is because the fellowship with God has been broken. And this table is meant to restore the fellowship you had with God. And therefore, it's very appropriate that every week we celebrate communion. If you could, and I will get to the reason why you, you shouldn't, but every day you need that restoration. Every time you sin, you need to repent that you know about it. And not only the sins that you do know about, but the multitude of sins that you don't know about and therefore, you can't personally repent for them because you have no idea you did them. However, God does. And the confession says, for those manifold sins which I know and which I don't know. Thought, word, and deed. The things that I don't think are sins because I like it. 
And I know if I like it, God must like it because he gives me the desires of my heart, right? What a holy way of twisting the scriptures. Unholy way of twisting. But the table reminds us this is where we get our fellowship restored when we repent. And so Jesus commanded, take, eat, drink, come, because this is the way you get set right with God again and again and again in that fellowship. The relationship has been taken care of Christ by Christ. So you take time to prepare for, for communion. It's not just coming in on Sunday and sitting down and listening to the sermon and saying, oh boy, it's time to take communion. In, again, in my background, um, way back, in fact, in my first church we did this, about Wednesday or Thursday night before we had communion, we only celebrated it periodically. We would have what they called as a preparatory service. And the people would come and we'd go through the Ten Commandments and we go, when was the last time I forgot about God? When was the last time I made an idol? When was the last time I dishonored his name? When was the last time I misused the Sabbath? And you go through the Ten Commandments and you confess your sins with each and every one of them. And in doing that, you recognize why you're taking communion. That has passed out of the church. I don't even know that the church I first served even does it anymore. But it's even more than that because at the end of the service we would say this confession is not only between you and God but where have you hurt another Christian or another person? And we do it on Wednesday or Thursday night because now you've got three days before Sunday and you better go make right that relationship the best that you can. Confess to that person your sin. Ask that person's forgiveness. Because that is what communion reminds us. This is a family meal. It's not me and Jesus taking the elements. It is us and Jesus. That is all that it's about. And therefore, I need to confess. And with that confession, there's always the assurance of pardon. On my behalf, I'm given the responsibility as a pastor and a minister of the gospel to proclaim to people, on the behalf of the cross of Christ, you are forgiven. On behalf of the cross of Christ, you believe God's already forgiven you. It is gone. It's, not, it's a non-issue with God anymore. And it's like when somebody says that verbally to you, you may know it theologically and you may know that Christ is forgiving you. But when someone says that verbally, there's healing that takes place. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. But thank you for being the voice of God to tell me my sins are dealt with. You know, I've seen people who've recognized and realized what happened. All of a sudden they went from, oh yeah. Because they experienced, again, part of the mystery and the seed that takes place within communion. 
It also recognizes, this, com this communion recognizes, as the catechism tells us, the unity we have with Christ and one another. This is a picture of our unity with Christ. What brings us together? Well, you have Christ who has the Holy Spirit. You have all of us. Boom, 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 boom. Boom who have the Holy Spirit. And the same Spirit that is in Christ is the same Spirit is in each believer and the same Spirit in the believers together. And what brings us together at communion? Not the elements. We're going to talk about that next week. It's the Holy Spirit within both of us who operates. And all of a sudden, by the Spirit, you are, quote, in a sense in the presence of Christ, and Christ is in the presence of you. And by that same Holy Spirit, you are brought together. You are there. So John in John 14, 20, Jesus would say, you are in me and I am in you. How? By the Holy Spirit. In John 15, 1 to 11, he would give that great illustration, I am the vine, you are the branches. I feed you. How does he feed us? By the Holy Spirit. In that sense, I like to call the Holy Spirit the sap. Because it's the Holy Spirit that runs between the vine and the branches that brings all the nourishment and feeds and all of the life that Christ has is brought to us. Just like that's what the sap does within vine and branches. And when you come to communion, that Holy Spirit is working. Now, it may not be raise up your hands and jump and sing for joy. But he's working. You may not experience it. You may not feel it. But the reality is he's working. There are some days I am so enraptured with my wife that it's amazing. And there are other days I could say, who is she? <laughs> but we're still married and we still share that love. It's absolutely phenomenal. But that's how the Holy Spirit operates. And that's what the picture of the supper is. But it's also a picture of the family. Of us together. Probably the best known passage for communion comes from 1 Corinthians 11. Where Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and after he had given thanks as we have done in his name, he broke it. Said, take, eat, this is my body for you. And after supper in a similar manner, he took the cup. He said, drink of it all of you uh, for this is the blood in my the new covenant. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Look at that passage and look at the context. The context is a family meal. See, they, they did things a whole lot different back then. One of them is they would have a worship service and then they would go into the fellowship hall and they'd have a meal together. And that meal could be quite contentious because people would bring their own food. This is, this is really the first providential dinner. Not potluck, providential dinner. 
you brought your own food. And those who were rich brought a lot of food, and they ate their own food. And those who were poor brought very little food, and they wouldn't share. And it was a way of dividing the body. And Paul says, this is not good. This is not good. Why? Because at the end of that meal is when they would celebrate communion. Wouldn't it be interesting if next Sunday we worship and then we go in for the meal and we celebrate communion after that meal? Just a thought. Don't have to do it. Just a thought. We want to be biblical Christians. First century Christians. Well, first century Christians weren't that good. Read it. Read Corinthians. Come on. In fact, read any of the epistles and you'll find out they weren't that good. We, we may be stellar in, before them. But that's what they did. And so they were recognizing the body and the unity they had as a people of God. And in doing that, they were dealing with their contentiousness. And they're also reminded, this is not a private meal. This is not you and Jesus on a journey all together by yourself. It is us and Jesus together. Now, when I was laid up with my knee operation, the elders would bring me communion, for which I really appreciated, because I remembered this kind of stuff here. There's only one time I said don't, because I was really sick. But they would come. But when they came, they came as representatives of you, and they brought the elements that had been on the table during the service. It was a continuation, an extension of the service. And that's what it's meant to be. And it's a time we reconcile with one another. Application. You have now about an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes before we take communion. Maybe a little bit longer. Well, we'll give you another five minutes. If you are not reconciled with another brother or sister in Christ, you have one hour and 50 minutes to reconcile. Why? Because to, that, to not reconcile is not to show the unity of the body. It's also why we call it in the present Holy Communion. It's our common union with Christ and with Christians. That's what you signify. And if you're not, if you don't have relation, a positive relationship with Jesus Christ, how can you take the meal? You're being hypocritical. And if there's a break in the fellowship with other Christians, how can you take the meal and call it Holy Communion? It's holy discommunion that way. Well, I just lost you right there, right? Huh? <laughs> but that's what it signifies. And the mystery is, when you are taking communion, and there is an end at the end, when you're taking communion, the mystery is, the Spirit connects you with Christ and He connects you with one another. There ought to be greater unity in the body of Christ when we have finished with the meal than there was with the beginning. And you look at each other and you say, that's my family. That's the body of Christ. 
They have the same spirit I do. They have the same Savior that I do. We read the same Bible. We live and worship in in a similar way. That's the communion, the community there. And then finally, there's a future. And the future has to do with question 75. Where do we find Christ's promise to feed and nourish? And again, I read or at least recited the 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, where we now call communion the Lord's Supper. Because he is the host. He's the one who sets the table. Now, I know Jonathan has set this table physically. But Christ has set this table before him. And I know John will be behind it when it comes to communion. I think he's going to be behind it today. And when he comes, he will be standing there. But you will see behind him Christ as the host. It's Christ who calls you to come to this table through John. It's Christ who inaugurated this table through the apostles. It's Christ who sits at the head of the table and carves up his nourishment and feed and passes it out among you. And again, the mystery is you don't see it. But it's happening. You don't see it with your eyes. But spiritually, you begin to realize it takes place. And that's why there are actions that we take for this meal. Brought a loaf of bread. Again, this is part of my tradition. I can't, I can't get away from it. After 40, 50, 68 years of looking at this stuff, I just can't get away from it. When it comes time to institute the supper, we lift up, not lift up, but we lift up and out to the congregation of bread. And usually it should be unleavened bread. I just couldn't find it yesterday. I apologize for being slack and lazy, but that's it. And then we break it. And when you watch the drama of its breaking, you recognize the body of Christ being sacrificed for you. Some churches I went to, they used to cut the loaf so the pastor didn't have to do the hard stuff. And I said, no, 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 no. I want to I wanna struggle with it because I want to show the people the struggle of Christ in his body that is given. And then you take the cup. And just so I wouldn't have nervous elders, I didn't bring any wine or grape juice. Because they may think, the guy's old, his hand shakes. We may, he, he may get it all over our carpet. No. <laughs> but you take a pitcher and you visibly pour the wine, or the, in our most cases, grape juice, out of the pitcher into the cup. And in, in this case, you get to watch the cup fill. And as you watch that cup fill, you, re, you remind yourself, Christ shed his blood for my sins. And all of it, all of my sins have been covered. And then you drink of it. All of it, he said. You are in a sense reenacting 
his Passover, where in the Passover he took the third cup, which is a cup of redemption. The cup where they were reminded of how God had redeemed them from Pharaoh and set them apart, basically by the blood of a perfect sacrifice put on the lentil and on the top so that when it dripped down, it made the sign of a cross. And they are reminding themselves, and Jesus was writing, this is the new covenant that is in my blood. Drink all of it. He was playing with that image. And this is, in a sense, the new Passover that even Paul talks about in Corinthians. The Passover of Christ that is there. And at the end, especially the Matthew passage, he says this. He says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until... I, excuse me, I'll tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That can be taken two ways. It can be taken, he drinks it, he doesn't literally drink it when we have communion, but he is here with us by the Spirit. But it also reminds us that one day he's coming back. And the image of his return is a marriage feast. And after we have cleared the table of all the food, the image that is there, he's going to stand up and say, welcome to my table. Here's the bread. Here's the wine. Let's remember what I did for you. That's the kind of image even Revelation 19 ought to give to you about it. And that's why we celebrate communion. It is past, present, future. It's a memorial, it's a Eucharist, it's a Holy Communion, but it's the Lord's Supper. And when you come and you take that little piece of bread, and maybe you should break it before you eat it, although you've got a cup in your hand too. And when you drink that cup, you reflect upon the great sacrifice of Christ and who he is. And you allow the Holy Spirit, well, excuse me, you don't allow the Holy Spirit to do anything. The Holy Spirit does what he wants to do. That's the whole part about being God. The Holy Spirit works within you in a mysterious and yet seed-producing way in your life. You may not see the results for years, but it will be there, and he will do his work. So next week, we talk a look about the presence of Christ in the meal. And then from there, we'll go on who should come to the table and who should be there. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, it is a beautiful thing that you have given to us. Finer than any icon, finer than any painting, finer than any way in which we represent anything in this meal. Of blood poured out on our behalf of a body sacrificed for our sins. For the full remission of our sins, of a call to be repentant and indeed to be, recon to be reconciled into the fellowship we have with the Father. May we, Lord, not miss that every time we celebrate this meal.
may you take what has been said today and and cement it into our hearts and our minds that when we come to the table, we may come with great joy because what have you done, but we may also come with great wonder that you would do it for people like us and that we may indeed remember the great gift of your sacrifice and sit and eat and drink with you and with one another for the cause of the kingdom. It's in your name we pray, Holy Lord Jesus, along with the Holy Spirit and the Father and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.